Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnutt, and with me today is Tendai Vicky, Associate Partner at Strategizer. Tendai is also an author, speaker, and definitely not an innovation sherpa. You'll get that joke if you read Tendai's books or if you read them after this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tendai. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm definitely not an innovation sherpa, that's for sure. How would you describe yourself? What are you, Tendai? What do you do? Can you describe a little bit about you and your role at Strategizer? Yeah, so um, I remember once I said on a on a on an interview with uh, Thinkers Fifty that uh, my job is to help elephants do ballet, and I, and I was watching it with my four year old son. I was like, "Look, I'm on YouTube," and then I said, "I help elephants do ballet," and it was like, "Seriously, Dad? Is that what you really do?" <laughs> like it, <laughs> you took it so literally that I help elephants do ballet. But yeah, what I really do for a living is I go into large organizations and I help those large organizations think about the future and also think about how to keep systematically thinking about the future. And so I help large companies create their innovation processes, particularly around transformative innovations, which are the kinds of innovations that are you know, driving business models that are different from what the company is trying to build or has been running as a core business from before. This is really interesting thinking about the future and in innovation because innovation, I guess, can be to improve what you're currently doing in a new or different way. But it's really interesting that you specified the future. So do you tie the two things together? Have you always been fascinated by the future? So that's interesting, right? Because even the reference you make about trying to think about doing what you've already been doing in new and interesting mm. ways is also thinking about the future. Mm. The future you're thinking about is more short-term. It's more, it's more close by. I mean, the reason why most companies would ever think about improving their systems or their processes or updating their technology is because they're trying to prepare for something that's happening in the world that they're trying to respond to. They don't just do that as a form of waste, right? They don't just engage in improvements for the sake of improvement. They engage in improvements because it helps the business sustain itself into the future. The only question on deck is, what is the distance of the future we're thinking about? Is it the future short-term? Is it the future medium-term? And is it the future long-term? And those are three different levels of innovation that companies have to work on uh, on, a, on a consistent basis. 
of those phases which have you always been fascinated with is it and what is maybe short medium and long term how you frame it in your mind yeah so we have a framework of strategizer where we talk about three types of innovation it's connected to other kinds of frameworks that have happened before i mean mckinsey have the three horizons which really puts the the time aspect of it into play right you know the next three years, the next five to 10 years, the next 20 plus years, whatever. But a strategizer, we use words uh, like efficiency, innovation, which is optimizing your current core business, right? Serving the same customers with maybe similar products. And then we have sustaining innovation, which is maybe a slight deviation from your current business model. Maybe you start targeting new customers in new markets. Maybe you shift the value proposition a little bit and start working on different things, but it's still kind of tied around your core business. And then finally, we have what we call transformative innovation, which is entirely new business models from the business model that you've been driving your company with. Maybe you're targeting completely new customers with new products, and that combination puts you in a different world in terms of like the numbers of unknowns that you have to deal with. Are you interested in all different aspects of innovation equally? You mean like intellectually, like myself personally? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm interested in the crazy plates. <laughs> I'm interested in the, I don't know if this is going to work. We're going to jump off the, the mountain and make the parachute while we're going down kind of innovation. Yeah. As I look at the things that you've done, and we'll talk about frameworks a little bit more in, the, in a moment and thinking about the topics that you cover in your book, I'm just interested in where this enthusiasm and fascination with innovation comes from. Is there anything that you can point to in either your career or your life where this thirst for innovation and thinking about the future came from? Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by creativity. You know, I was raised in a kind of a creative family, if you want to call it that. Or maybe not a creative family, but one member of our family who was my hero was my uncle. Um, and he was very creative. He was an artist. I spent a lot of time hanging out with him. He was a DJ. And then I, I myself got into music a little later, recorded a couple of hip-hop albums with my friends. So I've always been interested in, like, creativity but um, I also had a very dominant sort of academic mind. So I was always really great at school and ended up getting scholarships and doing a PhD in psychology. Ended up researching the psychology of creativity as well, <laughs> just for a couple of years there. But what actually really triggered my interest in, in innovation more directly was as I was kind of growing up, growing in my academic career, I ended up as a fellow at Stanford. And that was the first time when I saw that there is actually the possibility of my, of my two interests to meet. Because, you see, academia is about structure and process and finding connections between things that are repeatable and kind of designing frameworks that can be used to manage various business processes. So that's like the academic interest that I had. And in Silicon Valley, I suddenly realized that that academic interest can actually be combined with creativity and innovation it's this sudden realization that innovation is management was really fascinating for me. And so that's where like the interest really peaked um, was the time that I spent in, in Silicon Valley. It's really interesting that you've used creativity and innovation in the same sentence, because one thing I was curious to know coming into this podcast is how you distinguish, if at all, the relationship between the two. So are creativity and innovation mutually exclusive they're not mutually exclusive. So creativity and innovation are not mutually exclusive. They are significantly overlapping, but they're also different. So creativity is almost like the, the energy that feeds innovation. 
like you need to be creating and inventing and and coming up with new ideas and concepts and it's it's the juice it's the source it's the it's the energy innovation then asks a different question which is okay really great creative ideas but can we make an impact with those can we change something in the world with those can we um, you know, develop really great business models with those? Can we develop great products? Can we develop great services? Is there something that can create value for an end user, a customer, a business, society? And once you start asking the impact question, you then have to take all your creative ideas and evaluate them through a different lens, which is different from, I don't know, displaying your 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 art in a museum, maybe. This is nice because it leads me to think about the framework point you were raising before. And I have the note in front of me to say that um, you've won awards for the Pearson's Product Lifecycle Framework introduced in 2015, which you won a Corporate Entrepreneur Award for. And I'd just maybe like you to elaborate a little bit more on what that framework is. It's very interesting when you start discussing things like frameworks in the context of creativity, you kind of sometimes see people's eyes roll and you think, oh, can we not just get on with the fun, creative things? People might not necessarily associate the two things. I come from a school of thought where I feel like frameworks can really help provide foundations for creativity to flourish. I'm interested in your perspective on it. So can you talk me through this Pearson's product lifecycle framework a little bit more? Yeah, no, I'm very happy to talk about the Pearson product lifecycle framework. But before we get to that, let's just address this topic that you just sort of raised, which is really fascinating for me, which is this idea that when you're doing creative stuff, you don't have structure. Like that's, that's, um, it's, it, it's based on this myth of like, you know, the vagabond artist who drinks and stays up late, womanizes and then paints in the morning as the sun is rising. Right. And it is a myth. And then they die young, right? That's part of the myth. That's not how a lot of productive people actually work. Like a lot of people that produce great art, a lot of people that write great novels or produce great films or have a really great acting career. Actually, those people have much more structure in their lives and how they conduct themselves, which allows them to then really have their creativity flourish. I'll tell you like one example, for example, right? Like how to brainstorm. There's a lot of academic research on how groups can brainstorm well. And the worst way to brainstorm is to have one person standing by the whiteboard and everybody shouting their ideas at them. We know that's the worst way to, to actually brainstorm. And so people who say that we don't want structure, well, actually, they, we know through academic research and just studying groups and how they work together, particularly like the, the, you know, the folks from IDEO, we know what works in terms of driving creativity and so we can actually bring those principles to, to bear to the creative process. And therefore, we can also bring those same principles to bear for the innovation process. This is interesting because I think I put myself in a scenario where, let's say, for example, I'm a manager, I'm a leader of a business, or I'm trying to revitalize or reimagine what innovation is in a company. And I start to discuss these things and I start to discuss these things and frameworks related to these things. And maybe I do sense that skepticism or I see eyes roll in the room. I remember, I think it was in the Pirates of the Navy book that you discussed innovation myths. I can't remember exactly. And you yeah. talk about innovation theatre. So do you think there's perhaps a perception still and do you come across it where there's kind of a view on innovation that it's something it's not? Yeah, I don't know to what extent people authentically believe the myths, right? 
Um, I, I like to, you know, take a positive view of human beings. Everybody's trying their best, but they're just like, you know, misunderstanding what works and what doesn't work. And then sometimes the organizations we work in, the leaders also believe the myth, so they reward certain behaviors. And then people become incentivized to keep performing those, those behaviors. But if you're talking about innovation, for example, I mean, how do we know that an innovation has succeeded? That's a question. And we know an innovation has succeeded when, you, when, when, when three things come together. When you have a really great idea that's really fascinating and, and really impressive, right? People love great ideas because great ideas are, are inspiring. So that's the creativity part. But then you have to combine that with creating value for customers or value for society. The moment you combine your creative work with value creation for society, you've taken the first step towards innovation, away from creativity towards innovation. Your creativity is now being driven and being, and you're optimizing and iterating your idea to make sure that it actually creates value or solves a problem for society, solves a problem for a customer segment, solves a problem for a group of people. So that's the first step. Then the next step after that is to say, okay, I've come up with a really great idea. It's creating value for customers. Can I come up with a way that while I'm creating value for customers, I can create value for myself, for my startup, for my organization, for my team? Is there a way of creating that value, delivering that value, and then getting value back from customers? And we call that last element the business model. What is my revenue model? What are, what are the, what is the value chain? What are the channels I'm going to use to deliver the value to customers? Because it's distinctly possible to have a really great idea, even a breakthrough technology that creates no value. Having a great breakthrough technology is not the same thing as having a great value proposition. So that's one thing. The other problem is that it's also distinctly possible to have a great value proposition, deliver it to customers and lose money doing it. And so you have to solve also for that last element. And so this combination of really great ideas, great value propositions and great value and, and great uh, business models, that those three things put together, when you put those three things together and it works, that's when you really recognize that that's a great company. That's a really great company over there. That's Facebook. That's Uber. That's Tesla. That's right. Because you can see all of those elements have come together. In, in, in this one pot. And, and once that pot is put together, now you have great in, innovation. When a business owner or a manager or a leader type reaches out to strategizer, and maybe you just personally, what signs are you looking for that they are maybe innovation ready? You've just described maybe a few things there that you're looking out for, but are there any other characteristics, skills, or foundations that you look to have in place before you say, yeah, you know, I can really help these people because they have the foundations of what they need to have the essence of innovation that they need. Well, I, I think one of the things that really matters is that, like, as strategizer, we, we can work with any company, like a company that has got nothing in place at all, or a company that's got a few things in place that they've been thinking about working on. We have a philosophy that we meet our clients wherever they are. But what matters is alignment on philosophy, right? And the, and the question we often ask leaders is, do they have the right convictions about what works when trying to drive innovation inside large companies? Because when leaders have the wrong convictions, we'll spend all our time arguing about philosophy. And when we argue about philosophy, it's, it's almost impossible to have the tools and practices adopted well. And so that's really the, 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 the number one question we have. We often spend a lot of time aligning on principles like, you know, the best way to find great ideas is to have 
plenty of ideas. And then you systematically manage investments in those ideas by making small bets, allowing some ideas to fail because they don't have traction. And then over time, figuring out which ideas are worth keeping on investing in. So that's a philosophy, right? It's an innovation funnel. And then if we align on that philosophy, then the next question becomes, okay, well, how do we put that in place? And then that's when our work really kicks in. Now we can help companies put that in place. What happens if your innovation philosophy aligns with the person that reaches out to you, but that innovation philosophy doesn't necessarily align with their team? Are you able to help that person that's reached out to you instill or change perceptions on innovation and the innovation philosophy? Yes. And what's interesting about that, right, is that we're often in conversations with pirates, right? Pirates in the Navy, yeah. people that are that are not in leadership positions in their organizations, but are somehow tasked with driving innovation. And so they're struggling to influence their leadership to bring them and align them with the philosophy of how you manage innovation over time. And so we actually do, when we engage with uh, you know, folks who are struggling with that, we actually care a lot that they're building a bridge between their work and leadership. We insist if we can get away with it, on getting an audience with the leadership. We have a series of workshops and keynotes that are designed to provide innovation insights for leaders. And to the extent that we're successful in aligning with leadership, what that does is it removes a few blockers for the innovation teams to become successful. What we've found is that the, the opposite ways is easier. When we have leadership support, it's often easier to get teams to align. But when teams are aligned and we don't have leadership support, it's often far more difficult to implement an innovation ecosystem that can sustain over time. Mm. It's really interesting what you, the phrase that you use, and you use this in your books as well, the intrapreneur. For anyone that's not come across that phrase before, are you able to describe who the intrapreneur is within a company? <laughs> yeah, no, the intrapreneur is just, it's a play on entrepreneur, right? It's an, it's an entrepreneur inside a large organization. People are working on new products, new services, maybe even trying to improve current services, just anything entrepreneurial. And I love um, Eric Reese's definition of entrepreneurship, which is, you know, any task or any like big project that deals with a high level of uncertainty. It's almost like one of the key characteristics that identifies innovators, right? Is this comfort with uncertainty and then like the ability to work through that uncertainty until they figure out something that works. Tell me if I'm correct, but it sounds like these people aren't always necessarily the business owners. What's interesting, right, is that there's been a change over time. So in the early stages, it was mostly the innovation managers, the entrepreneurs who were really struggling inside their organization, the teams, you know, to, to get coaching while they're working on a product. But what we've seen over time is that there's an evolution. Leaders are now more and more convinced that innovation is the best way to drive growth inside their organization. So we're getting... A lot of leadership now reaching out to us, chief strategy officers, chief innovation officers, sometimes even CEOs, sometimes even founders. I remember once I was in Germany, well, actually, they were not the founders, they were the children of the founder. But uh, I was in Germany working with a Mittelstand manufacturing company, and the two sons, who were the sons of the founder, who were the owners of the company, plus the two CEOs, were the ones that reached out uh, for us to work together on trying to build this innovation ecosystem in their company. I'd assume that people that know you have some prior knowledge of your work. And so when they reach out to you, 
maybe they're qualified and know your philosophy on innovation and your perspective on innovation. But do you ever get the opposite where people aren't familiar necessarily with your work? They know about strategize and know what you want to achieve. And so they come to you with all of the innovation myths that you were just discussing and that are covered in your, your books. And you find yourself thinking, well, actually, this person isn't necessarily ready to work with us or we need to do a lot of work here to overcome these innovation myths that they maybe they withhold. Alice Osterwalder is pretty famous, right, with the business model canvas mm. and, and, and strategizer. There's a lot of like gravity that draws people to us. But what we learn is that there's often like, there's two things, right? People are drawn to us sometimes because they kind of like what they see. They see how cool it is and, and, and creative it is, but they haven't really dived deep into the details. It's kind of like people who know the tune, but don't know the lyrics. <laughs> and, so, and so they come to us, you know, humming the tune. And then when you show them the lyrics, they're like, oh, is that what you meant? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that is, that, that, that happens. But, but, but what happens most often is we get people who reach out to us are aligned to us. But when they bring us into their organization, the people they introduce us to, who they want us to have conversations with, are the ones who, who we then have to sort of start challenging their assumptions and myths. And we take that as part of the work. We embrace that as part of the work that we do. That is the job of being a, a, a partner, a strategy. I'm really interested to know the differences between working at this level to overcome some of these innovation myths in startups or small companies versus larger, well-established corporations. My assumption is that it would be a very different approach depending on the type of business. Is mm-hmm. that what you see in experience or is there consistency between the two types of business? Uh, yeah, I don't, know how, I, don't know how, I don't know how to frame it. I remember earlier on in my career, I, I spent a lot of time coaching startups in accelerators like Rockstar, uh, Rockstar Accelerator in Amsterdam. And the hardest thing to do with the startup was to convince them to go talk to their customers. Like if, if it was like a bunch of engineers, they wanted to work on the product. They believed that if they build it, the, the customers will come. And so the, that, was, that was a difficult conversation to like, come on, you need to map your business model. You need to extract the assumptions from the business model. Okay, of all these assumptions we've extracted, which ones do you have evidence? So that was a whole process of trying to convince a startup to go and test their own idea, even though they've left their jobs, they've taken money from investors, and their whole life depends on the survival of this one startup. Right? And so that was always a challenge. And it still is a challenge, by the way. The best, the worst people at being startups are startups. Right? Mm. So, so that was one of the things that we kind of discover. Inside a large organization, you get the opposite effect, I guess, which is we are successful. We've been successful. Why do we need to change the way we do things? Right? And so you're having a, a different conversation. You're dealing more with complacency than yeah. you are dealing with uh, uh, just the resistance to having a conversation with customers. Yeah, that complacency point is really interesting in context of the frameworks and the points that you make. Again, I forget which book. I think it's got a thread that's throughout your content is the importance of and the, the distinction between things like R&D research and um, an actual innovation or the, the practical side of innovation in terms of creating things as well. So maybe thinking that through a little bit more it sounds like complacency maybe occurs as well when people don't have those frameworks in place and we revert back to what we were talking about before when people have this kind of innovation myth that they're brought into that of a creative lifestyle and aren't willing to put structure to that maybe i I don't think so actually 
I think that if people buy myths about creativity, that, that that's a completely different challenge, right? The complacency inside large organizations is complacency based on success. And when you when you when when a company starts as entrepreneurial and then it finds something that works, and the moment that that company finds something that works, now the job of all the bureaucracy that's set up is to manage the success right. and to make sure that that success sustains itself. And over time, the bureaucracy grows and grows and grows. And actually, in the early stages of a of a, of a company, as the bureaucracy grows, the growth increases. Like the more structure you put in place, the more salespeople you hire, the more you systematize your sales process, the more you see growth. And so that further incentivizes the embedding of structures and processes. Now, the problem with that, those structures and processes that are designed to manage success is that in doing that, you're almost inevitably stifling innovation. You almost have to create a different part of your company's personality that is still exploratory and does not fall under the, the management influence of these more structured, repeatable processes that are there for scaling and growing an already existing business model. And that's the harder thing to do, which is to balance being already successful and managing that success while exploring future opportunities at the same time. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to speak about that a little bit further and get some principles or advice from you on how people can approach that. Because I remember reading again in your content somewhere about making sure that you don't, you make sure that an entire team feels a part of that process. And so you don't want to create innovation labs that, that people don't feel bought into within a company, for example, or innovation initiatives within a company that feel alien to them and that they're not a part of. So how do you find that balance of inclusion whilst retaining your focus on a core business, but still thinking about the future. That must be incredibly difficult. It's, it is incredibly difficult because if you're working in a large company, virtually impossible for any innovation team to succeed on their own. Mm. At some point, they're going to need to have a conversation with somebody in the core business. They're going to need to talk about marketing, sales, right? They're going to need to talk about legal and compliance issues. And all of these things are things that are the functions of the core business. So it's virtually impossible for an innovation to succeed inside the large company without sort of touching all these elements of the core business. The fundamental question that companies struggle with is knowing when that happens. At what point on the, on the innovation journey does that happen? Sometimes these core functions stifle innovation too early. And because they stifle innovation too early, they sometimes force innovators to flee to their innovation labs. And as, and as innovators flee to these innovation labs, they then stay there too long and, then, and, and, and don't come back early enough with their ideas so that those ideas can then be embedded back into the process. And so there's this dance that's going on, which is how do you create a space for innovators to thrive and then also build a bridge between what innovators are doing in the core business so they can support each other to get those products to scale? You know, as we're talking this through and we're talking about the growth of innovation within a business, I suspect that as an innovation manager or as a business owner, you would hope that that accountability for innovation is spread across the team and there's not a single point of focus. You don't just have one person responsible for innovation. It becomes ingrained in the, ingrained in the culture, which then makes it easier to manage. Do you find that that does happen naturally and that 
while one entrepreneur or innovation manager type might reach out to you when you start working, the process naturally helps to identify other people that are hungry for responsibility for innovation. Does that happen naturally or do you kind of have to uncover it? Oh, so I just want to question one of the assumptions that's embedded in your question, which is this idea that the best way to drive innovation culture is to make everyone an innovator. Okay, so we're running a core business, right? We're running a successful business. We want the successful business to still be successful even while we're exploring. So if everyone is an innovator, who's running the core business? So that's, that's the first question. So it's not that, it's not that everyone, should, everyone should be an innovator. It depends on the type of innovation. So for example, if we're doing efficiency innovations, the best people that are suited to drive those innovations are the people in the core business that are working with the product every day and hearing customer complaints and seeing the technology evolving around them. They're the best people to drive core innovation or efficiency innovation, right? So that makes perfect sense. But when it comes to transformative innovation, because you need different management systems, management practices, different metrics, different incentives, it is really important that there's actually a group of people that are responsible for that. There should be actually a chief entrepreneur who has got a lot of power inside the organization that is responsible for driving that. And, and that matters because if we're saying that innovation is a key driver of growth, then how come a lot of companies don't really value their innovation function? I often ask a question to, to innovators, which is, how easy would it be for leaders to get rid of you, in your own opinion? Would it be as hard as getting rid of finance as a function or as easy as getting rid of external consultants? And a lot of innovators tick the external consultants box because they understand that their function is not valued at the same level as finance, at the same level as HR, and at the same level as marketing, for example. And nobody ever makes the statement that if you have a head of finance, then your company is not good at finance. But they always make the statement that if you don't have a head of innovation, or if you, if you have a head of innovation, it means your company is not good at innovation. It's mm-hmm. kind of this sort of bizarre juxtaposition that people have with the way that they think that innovation works. And it's one of the myths that's going to that kind of drive sometimes the misapplication of how you really manage and drive great innovation inside large organizations. And so what are the, some of the characteristics of innovators within a company that, that, that uh, distinguish them from the people that should be necessarily responsible for core business? Is there a difference of their characteristics that you look out for? Yeah, I mean, there are some sort of, you know, personal characteristics. It's not to say that entrepreneurship can't be learned. Yeah. So I'm of the belief that entrepreneurship can be learned. That's why I'm in the business that I'm in, because I believe that people <laughs> can, can actually learn this as a practice. But it is the practice of understanding how to deal with uncertainty, how to measure uncertainty, how to test ideas, how to iterate on ideas, how to not get fixated on your first idea. All of these are practices that people can learn and can be applied in business. How do we make small bets and then increase those bets only on those ideas that are showing traction? Like all of these things are practices that that people can learn. But the entrepreneur in particular, because they're working inside a large organization, the really successful entrepreneurs are a combination of two things that are apparently contradictory. They're really, really driven by innovation. They love entrepreneurship. They love working on new things. They love driving new behaviors and change, et cetera. But they're also really great at building relationships with people in the core business. That combination is the killer app, if you want to say the killer, I don't know, characteristic of the great, you know, entrepreneur. They have this ability to build relationships build bridges with key functions, while at the same time being really creative and driving and driving innovation projects. 
Yeah, it sounds like resilience has a big part to do with it as well. So the there's a lot of maybe trial and error or experimentation or just being a person that's a catalyst for communication can take mm. its toll. Actually, mm-hmm. it, it, it's something that came up on the podcast recently about introverts and extroverts and the difference between them in terms of creativity. Do you tend to find that, that um, the responsibility for innovation can lean either, either way for extroverts or introverts? I think it depends on the culture of the company that they're in. There are some cultures where in, you know, introverted innovation leaders can thrive because it's easier to build relationships in those contexts you know, based on their, on their personality. I think ultimately, even just knowing, you know how sometimes they say like, you know, just knowing that something has to be done can facilitate it getting done well. So just knowing that innovation won't succeed if we hide ourselves away in a skunk work somewhere. We mm. do need to keep building relationships. I think that can help innovation thrive, right? And so I think that's important. It's just important to realize all the time. And that's why I have a chapter in Pirates of the Navy where I tell people you're not Elon Musk and you don't work in a company full of idiots. Because that attitude can result in the destroying of relationships that you're going to need to later scale your idea. And Tendai, just in, in closing for this episode, I'm interested to know, you've used the phrase, and I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you were talking about the ability to meet businesses at any point in their journey when you're working with them. But I am interested to learn more about the things that the misconceptions or the myths that you see on a regular basis that can prevent innovation that really come top of mind for you when you have these types of conversations, whether it's podcasting or in your book. Of course, we're linked to the resources in your books. Um, But what comes top of mind for you for the things, you know, people could be listening to this thinking, I want to be responsible for yeah, revitalizing innovation or how innovation is perceived within our company. What are some pitfalls to avoid? Yeah. So the number one myth that can destroy an innovation culture is when leaders believe that they can pick the winning ideas on day one. Like they believe that they can, when they see a winning idea, they'll know. And so they start building in processes that allow them to evaluate the ideas so they can pick the winners and long business cases, right? presentations with numbers and predictions about what's going to happen in year five. Because they believe that if they ask those kinds of questions, they'll then be able to pick the winning idea on day one. But actually with innovation, it's impossible, especially transformative innovation. It's impossible to pick the winning idea on day one. The only way to find winning ideas is to have loads of ideas and then see which ones of those end up working out. And that's a different management philosophy completely. The moment that we work with a company and they embrace that, we're halfway there. Like we're ready to start building an innovation ecosystem that supports that process of finding great ideas. That's so interesting. You've led me on to thinking about another question now. So I apologize because I always say it's the final question and then you've triggered something, another thought in me. So this is interesting because it's also a battle of when to be led by data. In my mind, you noted there about presentations and numbers and maybe... Uh, an innovation manager or business owner could be swayed by focusing on one idea because of the numbers that are presented to them. But yet you've talked there about the importance of having ideas that are tested over time and experimented with different types of ideas, which kind of counterintuitive to being perhaps leading with data from the off. How do you manage this aspect of data and analysis within an innovation culture? And there's also the argument as well, that again, I still hear in marketing, or you maybe sometimes that you don't even hear, you just feel it, where data becomes maybe an obstacle or people feel like it might stifle creativity. How do you feel about that? 
and I don't I don't even know whether this makes sense, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I never know what I'm going to say or if it makes sense. So yeah, join me on that one. Okay, cool. So data is not the same thing as evidence. So when to be led by data is when you believe that that data is evidence. That is evidence that's been gathered in the testing of a specific hypothesis that's related to the context in which you're about to make the decision. So if people are working on an idea and we don't know who the customers are going to be, we've never launched the product ourselves, and they come and present to us a five-year business plan where they're estimating the revenue they might generate, and they're doing it simply on the basis of the number of dog owners in a country, then that's data, but it's not evidence. It becomes evidence to the point where they've identified a hypothesis specifically related to the success of the business model they're working on right now, and they've gone out and tested that hypothesis, and they've brought that data to us to say, customers really want this. We already have 500 signups. So now we're looking for resources to scale this. That's a different conversation completely. And so what leaders need to understand is, at the beginning, people will have no data. So you have to, well, I mean, they'll have data, but they won't have that much evidence especially for transformative innovation. So you have to go with a strategic feel to say, "Mm, we want to play in this space. But here's how we're going to play. We're going to play by making multiple small bets and then bring us evidence. And then when you bring us evidence, we're then led by data to choose which ones of these bets that we've made are the ones we're going to double down on. And that's really how you do this dance between allowing people to be creative and also questioning those ideas. And so you do this definite data, creativity, data, creativity, data, creativity, and then you're managing an innovation portfolio. Tendai, it's been really fascinating to talk to you. I will just give a shout out to your books if people want to go find those. So you can find Tendai's books, The Corporate Startup, The Lean Product Lifecycle, and Pirates in the Navy. Tendai, where else can people find out more about you and Strategizer? Yeah, so you can find out more about us if you want to work with us at strategizer.com. And then if you want to find out more about my content, maybe hire me for a keynote if you'd like. It's uh, tendaiviki.com. So, my, so my, my name, tendaiviki.com. And Tendai, I don't get to ask this very often, but you mentioned the hip-hop reference at the beginning. I'm a big hip-hop fan. So can I get your top five in closing? <laughs> my top five what? MCs? Yeah. Or oh, just artists man. in general. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, man. KRS-One, uh, Rakim... So I'm not going to say Biggie and Puck, because that's what people are always expecting. <laughs> so Biggie and Puck, they, they don't count in there. Um, so yeah, yeah, Keras One, Rakim, you can tell that I'm old school. Most Def, a Black Thought from the Roots is really good. Um, I don't know whether you ever heard of Russ Katz, but Russ Katz was good as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tendai, yeah. it's been amazing to talk to you. Thanks so much for that. That's a good top five as well in closing. And it's, <laughs> yeah, very, very rare we get Raskas and uh, yeah, even even most Def and uh, Black Fort in the top five. But um, right. yeah, I appreciate you not going for the two fucking big angles. That's cool. Uh, you can tell that I love lyricists, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. It's been amazing. Thanks for your time. This has been cool. the Internet Marketing Thank Podcast. You, Cheers. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.